Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indigast. I'm Abhishek and joining me from the US is quite an interesting personality who's had a pretty eventful career path so far. Starting off somewhere in the reinsurance domain, uh, he was a consultant for a while and then he switched over to the US public radio and then dived actively into journalism and he wrote uh, for leading publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal Europe and today is the man responsible for all the changes that you've seen on the multimedia front at the economist uh, we've also had him on our show before when he was only a day or two old at the economist brendan greely is the man that uh, we are talking about and brendan thanks again for joining us uh, it's been a long time of course i'm always happy to be on skype with you tell me one thing you moved from reinsurance to multimedia few people might say that you are very versatile and a few others might say that you're all over the place Uh, lack of attention span? Yes, that's actually what my teachers told me. So, so what um, made you to make that switch? Oh, you know, it's probably less dramatic than it sounds. Journalism is just a quest for legitimacy, and I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. I mean, after I got done deciding that I wanted to be an actor, but that's a that's a different story. Um, just interesting. Would love to hear about that too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I arrived in New York fresh out of college in 1997 and it was a time in New York that's just gone. They would hand out jobs to anyone with a college degree and a pulse. So I got a job that was sort of as close to writing as I could get fresh out of college without any experience which was uh, working in PR for Swiss Re. And I did that long enough and then started my own business ghostwriting for reinsurance companies. And again, this is another time that is also gone in New York. I started doing internet consulting because at that point you could do internet consulting if you lived in New York and you were 25 years old. Right. Um, thankfully, that time has changed as well because I'm certain that I and a lot of other people my age gave a lot of companies a lot of really bad advice. Hmm. Um but I knew when I started that I wanted to work as a journalist and I took the money that I was making in reinsurance and I would take my own holidays and then I would send myself places to write. So it's not like I was dedicated to the reinsurance industry and then a light came on somewhere and I realized that I wanted to speak truth to power and became a journalist. It's just that it's really easy to make a job writing and it's really hard to make a living writing about what you want to write about. So I guess it's probably a pretty normal path that anybody who works in journalism at least in the US takes, which is that it's the path from writing about what people will pay you to write about to getting people to pay you to write about what you actually want to write about. And I sort of have finally at the ripe age of 35 arrived at the point where people are willing to pay me to write about stuff that I like to write about. And and they say one thing about journalism is that uh, you become a journalist because you know what you want to do in life. Uh, in the sense oh you, you at least you at least <laughs> that is so not true you become a journalist because you don't have any better ideas <laughs> oh well i was having this conversation this morning there are two reasons to be a journalist one is you want to be an academic but you lack the attention span mm-hmm. um so rather than producing papers which take you 6 months to a year to research you produce articles which take you a week and the other reason to be a journalist and this is actually honestly why why I wanted to be a journalist is that you get to meet really interesting people without having to be interesting yourself. Exactly. Um it's a really good excuse to call people up and talk. You know, if you didn't have this sort of sham of a reason that you're writing an article about someone you couldn't call a sitting member of Congress and get them to talk to you, but just because you happen to be writing about them, you can sit down and have a really interesting conversation. So it's it's, a, it's basically an excuse to constantly hold a cocktail party. <laughs> well, that's not true. There's all sorts of things that are really hard work about it, but no, that's true uh, because because it's interesting you say that. Uh, I've seen this movie. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this. All the President's Men. 
which has uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein who did mm-hmm. that whole Watergate scandal bit. And there uh, they showed Robert Redford who was playing one of the two characters. He just picks up the phone and calls up the White House and calls up the second uh, strongest person next to the president because he just is doing a story on the Watergate scandal. So mm-hmm. because you are a journalist, it gives you the power to pick up that phone and call up people, like you said, whether interesting or otherwise, as a part well, of your job. I think it's interesting that you bring up that example of that movie. So that movie inspired a whole generation of journalists who wanted to bring somebody down, who wanted to do investigative journalism. That movie and that book and Watergate itself inspired, I guess it's the generation that are editors now, and they grew up with the idea that their job was they were going to uncover some really dirty secret. So it is a culture that is based on cultivating sources in government and trying to figure out who might leak things and trying to figure out how it is that you can know some special thing that nobody else knows. And that's a very valuable part of journalism. But I think that there's another part that was missing, and I think you could see it in the U.S. at least, in the early part of this decade, which is making sense of things that are publicly available. I think if you look at what the New York Times did in the run-up to the Iraq war, they really focus on, and I've written for the New York Times, and I think it is a fantastic publication, I trust the news that they produce, but in the run-up to the war, they really focused on stuff that they knew and no one else did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they got burned on that stuff. They weren't very well served by that style of journalism, and there was lots of publicly available information that needed somebody to pull it together and tell a story. And that's what nobody in the U.S. was doing, was pulling together this publicly available stuff and asking questions about why is the rollout for the war happening now? You know, what's behind these various leaks from highly placed government officials that they won't put their names behind? I think that those questions weren't being asked. The reason they weren't being asked is not because the media was in the pocket of the government or the media had some sort of terrible agenda. I think it's a cultural problem, which is that the media at the time, because of the way they were training, because in large part that all those people were inspired by all the president's men, this book that you're mentioning, they desperately wanted to have information that nobody else did. The most accurate reporting that was done in the run-up to the Iraq war was actually done by a very small outfit, which was then called Knight Ritter and is now called McClatchy. And the reason they did the most accurate reporting is because they didn't have that ability that the Robert Redford character, Bob Woodward, did in All the President's Men, which is to call somebody highly placed to the White House and have them comment on something or have them leak. Mm -hmm. They had to go after very low-level sources. And because they weren't held captive to all these people, like Scooter Libby, who who was an aide to the vice president at the time, who were leaking this information, they had to go out and dig it up on their own. And what they dug up on their own turned out to be much more accurate, dramatically more accurate than what other papers were being leaked. So ironically, the less important you were, the less ability you had to act like Bob Woodward, the more accurate your reporting was. So I think that the U.S. media, at least, is caught in this transition. They're trying to figure out how it is that you make sense of large amounts of information that are publicly available. And again, I don't want to discount the importance of investigative journalism. I think the New York Times did a fantastic series on water pollution in the United States, which you can only do if you're really dedicated to exposing dark secrets. So I think that that's a very valuable way to be a journalist, but it's not the only way to be a journalist. And I think that that, that in a way we need to relieve ourselves, uh, and I think this is happening in the U.S., and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, we need to relieve ourselves of this obsession with Watergate-style journalism. Right, and maybe because today with the internet coming in and with all the social media sites like Twitter and all these, it gives far more power to the common man today than uh, there was back in the 1970s. What do you think the role of a journalist is now, given how much things, how much things have changed? 
I have my own answer, but I'm curious mm-hmm. to see what you think. Well, I guess uh, a good journalist today stands out the way he writes, the prose that he brings to the table, because uh, the information is available everywhere. In fact, Wikipedia is the source that I go to for any little thing that I need. But I would still read The Economist because there is an opinion which is not just said in layman's terms with facts, figures, but more importantly, some wonderful metaphors, some tongue-in-cheek humor, which makes me want to read a Philip Coggins article on capital markets or maybe Andreas on, on Google. So that that's what I think is today's role of the journalist. The garnishing bit, as unfortunate or rude it might sound. I would say something slightly different, which is, that's really interesting, though. I, I think it's fine that you use the word garnish. I think the fact that that's the word you came up with is pretty important. There's a blogger in the U.S., a very popular media blogger named Jeff Jarvis, who writes for a site called Buzz Machine. And he and a lot of other people believe that the role of the journalist has changed because facts have become commodities. And that because so many facts are available and so many different people can report them, that the fact itself has no value. And I hope I'm paraphrasing him right. Since that's true, then the journalist's job is no longer as the gatekeeper of the facts, but has to become involved in the conversation uh, online among the people who are collecting facts. I think this is hogwash. Uh, And the reason I think this is hogwash is that I don't believe that a fact has become a commodity. I think we have forgotten about the value of reputation. A fact consists of two elements. It's not just a thing that is true. We know that it's true because someone we trust has observed it, and we know that person to be trustworthy. In the old days, newspapers had stringers in various places, people who were trusted in some way by the newspaper and would report to have seen facts, and the newspaper would pass them on. And sometimes this model breaks down. Sometimes stringers aren't trustworthy. But by and large, if the newspaper is doing its job right, this model works. I don't think this model has changed on the Internet. Mm -hmm. So something is not true because the Internet says it's so. Something is true because Reuters has said it is so. So the fact that Reuters reports it does not make that a commodity. It means that only if I trust Reuters do I believe it. Now it turns out that I do. If I were to cut you in just for a moment... Is it because there are there are so many writers out there, the New York Times, there are so many publications, everyone's putting forth the same facts. So now I as an audience say, you know what, I know this. The economist has told me, now why don't you give me something more? So in that sense, haven't the facts become commoditized since you use the word? Perhaps. I think two things are happening right now. One is... It turns out that in some ways this theory of commoditization of facts is right, is that some sets of facts are becoming commodities. The president gave a speech. This was the text of it. That has no value. But there are two things that journalists have to do that journalists have always had to do, which is figure out how to verify the things that are harder to verify and then figure out how to make them into a story. So I'll give you a concrete example. I think some of the best journalism that was done this last year was done on Andrew Sullivan's blog and on the lead blog for the New York Times about the protests in Iran. Mm -hmm. Now, the traditional model for journalism, whereby there are people on the ground who see things, report them, and are then trusted by their editors to be passed on, that model broke down because there were no Western journalists in Iran. They had to leave. Right. So the best reporting was done by people who understood how to verify things on the Internet. 
who were able to look at Twitter feeds and figure out which ones were reliable and which Mm. ones weren't. This is a very old practice in journalism, is looking at sources and figuring out whether they're reliable or not. You have to do it in the real world all the time. Just because you're doing it digitally doesn't mean it's not real journalism. So in that case, the facts were not commodities. There was a flood. There was a glut of accurate and inaccurate information about what was going on. So Sullivan did an amazing job, and his team, he has a lot of interns working for him, Mm -hmm. did an amazing job of two things uh, that journalists still need to do. Uh, One was taking this glut of potential facts and deciding which ones to verify. They had to look at YouTube videos and verify that the dates were accurate. They had to verify that the locations were accurate. They had to sort of form maps of the city of Tehran based on landmarks that were visible in the YouTube videos. And they had to look at these Twitter feeds and decide, based on language, based on consistency, which ones were reliable and which ones weren't. And there are ways to do that on the Internet. If somebody has a Twitter history, then they're much more likely to be an accurate voice than somebody who has created a Twitter feed in the midst of a crisis. So there are ways to identify whether or not someone's telling the truth that are very similar to the way we do it in the real world. If someone's talking to you, you sort of watch their eyes to see whether they look nervous. (laughs) And if you get a bad feeling, then you may give less credence to what they're saying. You may work harder to verify what it is that they're saying. These cues exist in the digital world as well. So that example is one where facts were not commodities and somebody had to come up with a style of journalism that works to verify things that were presented digitally. That's a very old practice but a very new application of it. And then somebody had to take the information that was verified and turn it into a story to figure out how those facts came together as a narrative and presented to the world in a way that made sense. So I have a hard time agreeing that information is now a commodity and it's up to the journalists to become a part of the of the link economy and a part of the conversation. I think that it's up to the journalists to decide which of this glut of information is verifiable and then turn that verifiable information into a narrative that makes sense that we can remember because I don't have the patience to follow, you know, I could follow blogs and Twitter feeds and come up with my own narrative, but I think what Jeff Jarvis's theory ignores is that almost nobody has the time to do that. I don't have the time to do that in anything but my own discipline. I have to trust that political reporters have done their jobs, and the only way I can do that is by deciding whether or not to trust the publication that they work for. You have to, at some point, say this organization, Reuters, The Economist, The New York Times, Der Spiegel, you have to decide that these organizations are trustworthy, and you're just going to take their word at it. Otherwise, we're caught in this constant metaphysical loop where we don't know what's true and what's not true, and sometimes you just have to take reputation as a shorthand Mm -hmm. for what you could have with great labor figured out yourself, and that certainly hasn't changed with the advent of the Internet. It's still true that there's too much information in the world, and we have to trust somebody to make sense of it. It's my job to do this, and I trust other people to do it for me in the subjects that I don't specialize in. Right. I guess as an audience, we tend to be, uh, and I don't include you in it because you're part of uh, the journalist uh, cadre as such, but we tend to take certain things for granted. So maybe, mm-hmm. I mean, behind the scenes, we do not know the amount of hard work that might go into yeah. researching an article. And it, it also depends upon the journalist himself, how serious he is about his job. And I guess that's what separates uh, good publications and you, you tend to follow them. And uh, The Economist happens to be one among them. And <clears throat> in fact, <laughs> uh, oh, thank you. We're flattered. Yes, you've been uh, a part of the team for about two years, and I remember you 
said that you started off as uh, being the one man team at the economist during those early days so how much of it has changed and uh, i see there are a lot more audio video content on uh, your website yeah. than there were on day one so was that high up on your priority list to get people hooked on to the audio video content uh, it's an interesting question uh, you know i worked in public radio before going to the economist my first focus was to create as much audio as i could so the irony of my job that i may have pointed out 2 years ago uh, is certainly still true is that i was supposed to create audio and video for mm-hmm. a paper that doesn't use bylines and doesn't do <laughs> anecdotes yes so i mean that's <clears throat> what video is video is people and anecdotes if you want to do analysis on video what you end up almost always doing is putting two people in the room and having them talk at each other and that's just not very compelling video you have to do a lot of work to avoid the clichés of just sort of showing shots of a city in the background as you talk about it so i focused to start with on audio which i thought was more friendly one it's much easier to be anonymous in audio uh as right. you know the, the economist is an anonymous publication we've done very well in audio if you look at least in the us this is true in the uk too we consistently have a couple of audio podcasts in the top 100 and our all audio feed is consistently in the top 10 or 20 in the US and the UK uh, there are certain things that you can only do while you're listening to audio you can't drive a car and watch a video at the same time or at least i hope that you don't you can't do the dishes and watch a video at the same time you can't work out and watch a video at the same time I live in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, which is the home of the US Naval Academy where Marine Corps officers uh, go to college or at least a lot of Marine Corps officers mm-hmm. go to college. And I uh, was in a bar downtown and I met a Marine Corps officer. Um, and we were talking and he asked me what I did and I told him that I was the editor for all the podcasts for the Economist and he said, "No way. That's so cool." <laughs> I said, "That's not cool. What you do is cool." And he said, "Do you know Daniel Franklin?" <laughs> I said I do. I do know Daniel Franklin. <laughs> he is my boss. And the reason I bring up this anecdote is that the way he listened to it was while he was cleaning his rifle every week, he Ooh. would download that and listen to it when he was in Iraq. Mhm. That's For interesting. Me, it is. <laughs> so the lesson in that is we need to find people's habits and figure out how can you be part of somebody's weekly routine and it's much easier to fit into their weekly routine in audio than it is in video. Video is greedy. It takes your time. It takes your mm-hmm. eyeballs. You have to focus on it. Audio can happen while you're doing something else. I actually um I have a pair of marvelous Bose headphones that filter out sound and my wife got them for me as a Christmas present um, so that I could filter out sound while I was on the train and while I was flying. But it turns out a really good way to, to use them is when you're mowing the lawn because I listen to a podcast <laughs> called you know i don't have a rifle to clean so um that, the that's, next that's best the, thing yes that's the way that a podcast has inveigled its way into mm-hmm. my life into the regular routine so i'm kind of meandering off your question here which was was about audio and video but the problem is nobody has figured out how to make money off of audio on the mm-hmm. in the in the 50s and 60s um advertising dollars fled radio and went to television All advertising firms are staffed up to make videos. They made TV ads and so they want the universe to be the same. They love web video because it doesn't change their model at all. It just means that they have to make slightly shorter ads. They now make 15 second ads instead of 30 right. second ads. That's easy. They know how to do that. But they've got the creative staff. They've got the writers. They've got So I think the ability to make good radio advertising has been lost. It's a vestigial tail. That you just it doesn't get the money or attention. that it used to but i guess i high- yeah sorry Please sorry go ahead. no i guess i was saying no. that <laughs> go ahead you first. all right 
because a few more people listen to audio maybe there is that much more mind recall as in i listen to the podcast of the economist i i remember the brand and maybe it might not make as much money as one would imagine but uh, maybe a few more people would subscribe to the magazine do you see do you see that happening too that's a really good point and i think it's a really smart observation and this is a conversation we have been having internally which is that maybe it's not a product maybe it's marketing right and so the economist has a service called the audio edition where every second every word of the uh, of the economist is read every week and then published as the audio edition you can download the entire thing and listen to it how do you manage uh, that is this hours of this much requires is, i don't run that i have to tell you that a company called talking issues they're based out of bristol runs that and they are amazing they used to do audiobooks for the bbc it's two people who started this company i've watched them do it they have an unbelievable operation where they've got actors from from all over the south of england who come in a really interesting group of people <laughs> by the way who come in and um, they've got this production line that gets everything read and edited and they make sure that there's consistent pronunciation um, that yep. is a herculean task <laughs> they pull it off every thursday i think it's worth every penny that was an initiative that came from subscription marketing it did not come from editorial it was an incentive to get people to subscribe maybe the main vehicle for making money on all this stuff is to encourage people to subscribe to the economist and i think as you see the kindle take off it was uh, the most purchased item on amazon this christmas uh, season in the us newspapers are realizing that perhaps the subscription model is the one that is going to save them in the future uh, the economist is now on the kindle um, but i think it's interesting we don't charge a penny less than we do for the actual physical subscription If you look at the comments on Kindle, people are complaining about the price, but it's still the second most subscribed to publication on Kindle, which says to me that people are not paying for the physical copy of the Economist. They're paying for the experience of the Economist in whatever way that might manifest itself, whether it's something that arrives at your door, whether it shows up to your Kindle. So this is, uh, I think, increasingly that that's I think at least I, I know for a fact internally for a bunch of different. Um, this is the sound of my child in the back. I figured that out. Give her a high five if uh, if she's old I, enough. <laughs> that's 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 Brendette in the background. Um, ah. um, she doesn't really do high fives yet. Just, anyway, your question was whether the purpose of audio and video, or certainly just of audio, was to encourage more people to subscribe. And I think it's a really good question. I think increasingly, print publications are looking to subscription models to save them. And it all comes down to good journalism, then, like you said, that people would read the Economist through any other medium. as long as they uh-huh. get the news that they want as yeah. researched and the reputation that the economist brings in uh, you yourself have worked uh, in us public radio and now that you are here mm-hmm. uh, there is a jargon that i keep reading once in a while when people talk about media and interactive tv etc and the jargon is mm-hmm. lean forward and lean back mm-hmm. now what does this mean if you could explain in layman's terms the whole big deal about uh, the new media is more about lean forward and the old media was more about lean back Well, it's an interestingly phrased question. So, lean back is basically everything we've experienced up until now. So, when you lean back is sitting in your car listening to the radio, sitting on your couch at home watching television, these are experiences that don't require much of you. Media acts like a water tap. Uh, you turn it on, it comes out. Lean forward requires more of you. And so if you think about the stance that you have when you are sitting on a couch and compare it to the stance that you have when you are sitting at a computer desk 
you are hunched forward, you are manipulating things with your fingers, you're moving a mouse, you're typing in commands on your keyboard. This requires more of you. It asks more of you. So YouTube is a lean forward experience. YouTube videos tend to be short. You have the opportunity to comment. You move on very quickly after you see the last one. Cable television is a lean back experience. It comes at you. So what's interesting about that distinction is that media companies are struggling to figure out, A, how to provide a valuable lean forward experience. What is the best way to prevent video and audio on the web? And I think the other question that we're just now beginning to ask ourselves, and I just now beginning to ask myself, is do we necessarily have to provide a lean forward experience? I think the end result Mm-hmm. of all of the work that we've been doing at The Economist to be able to produce video and audio uh, is going to be that people are going to watch Economist television. The Some standard will be settled on, uh, and we'll be able to deliver, in a relatively convenient way, a video straight to television sets. In fact, uh, in the Greeley household, in the coming year, we're going to ditch our cable subscription to save money, and we're going to buy a Mac Mini. I'm not quite sure how I convinced my wife that buying a <laughs> Mac Mini was saving us money, but it worked. And we're just going to watch Internet videos. It's not a cultural decision. We both like TV and we watch TV. It's just a lot more convenient and ultimately a lot cheaper to stream it as bits over the Internet than to pull it as a channel down from from a cable system. So there's this truism about Internet video that I don't think is necessarily true, which is that it has to be short because that's the way people watch things on the Internet. I have been struggling internally to actually get us to figure out how to produce things that are longer, one, because I think it complements the economist style better. But the other one is, I think eventually what will be happening is that people will be watching economist television. They will be watching a stream of videos that we provide for them. When they go to work out in the morning, they will turn on the television, and within a few clicks, they will be able to to just sort of watch whatever we've produced in the preceding day as far as video goes, and it will all add up to about an hour. And that will be how we become a part of their daily video habits. So... Mm -hmm. I think that right now, because of the success of YouTube, companies are struggling to produce lean forward video, short, pithy, quick, quotable, uh, pasteable videos. And I think that long term or even medium term, it's lean back that will be more important. And I think the reason that companies are struggling with lean forward is also because when companies like the New York Times or The Economist wanted to hire up to make audio and video, they went to all of these lean back organizations radio, television, and hired a lot of people. That's how I got hired to work for The Economist. And we all went about doing what we were used to doing, which is creating lean-back programming, mm-hmm. hour-long talk shows, you know, longer documentary videos, because it's what we knew how to do. It doesn't work right now very well on the web, but I think it will work much better in a year or two. God knows what else will be different in a year or two when it's easier to take web video and deliver it to your television. It doesn't work too well today, maybe because while you're leaning forward, the user doesn't send much information back into the TV set or the Internet. Uh, For example, Mm -hmm. if I'm watching uh, some football match and I want to see a slow motion in a particular camera angle, Mm -hmm. if uh, the interactive TV or the new set that you have in mind can provide me with seeing that particular shot in that particular angle, then maybe I might ditch my TV and come back to the Internet. Do you see such technology being uh, made available to people? Because, you know, I remember you saying that uh, what works in print doesn't necessarily work in audio. Uh, a couple of years back when we had our podcast. So similarly, what works on TV might not work well on the Internet if you just copy and paste it. Uh, If you don't allow the user to send back some information and interact with uh, 
that particular channel it could be maybe a reality tv where you are sending out smss or it could be some some poll or any, anything of that sort i would ask a slightly different question which is do we necessarily have to interact just because we can some of this stuff strikes me as a stupid computer trick i'm not saying that to be curmudgeonly um mm-hmm. when you watch a football game what's the point of the football game it's not to have uh perfect information over what's going on in the field there are also things that are going on in your life while you're watching often you're hanging out with other people you're stepping in and out of the kitchen to grab a beer you're talking to people you're eating things and so perfect knowledge of the football game does not enhance the experience i'm a i guess a power user of podcasts i understand how they work i subscribe to probably 50 of them but i got to tell you when i get up in the morning and i'm making breakfast i just turn on the radio because mm-hmm. the radio works and more importantly i don't have to think about it your brain only has so much energy to do things over the course of the day and you don't want infinite choice over breakfast you just want some news coming at you you know it's hard enough to figure out whether or not your eggs are still good like the the, the, the you know creating the perfect podcast information playlist in the morning is not on my agenda it's actually too much work even though it's possible even though i could if i wanted to mix up the perfect batch of exactly 47 minutes of audio <laughs> that I need and carry it around with me but it yeah. turns out that I actually have a really cheap radio that I carry back you know I'm a multimedia editor at the economist or at least I was yeah. until this week and I carry a very cheap radio back and forth with me from the bedroom to the living room I think that too much can be made of interaction I think that the future for media companies mm-hmm. is figuring out how to create better lean back programming you know people have TV rooms they're a lot more comfortable they're laid out for watching video true and in fact there is a statistic that i read on one of the reports in the uk they said that in the first half of 2008 britishers watched 2% more tv than they did over the past 5 years in spite of youtube in spite of the whole new lean forward mechanisms that have come about mm-hmm. again it's mm-hmm. not that you really 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 need the information contained in a cooking show if that were true you know you'd get a cookbook out of the library it's cheaper right. and there's better information and it's a better reference if you're actually going to try and make a recipe it's that you want somebody to entertain you for a little bit and i do think that all said that there is limited value for lean forward on the internet and i think that we certainly in news i don't think we figured out how to display that stuff yet so we put important people on the record in audio and then right. what we do once right. we've done that is that we just treat it like it's a 20 minute radio show I would say that podcasting is actually a lean back experience. It's the same mm-hmm. as it's just sort of it's a slightly different mechanism than the radio in your car, but the effect is the same. We get roughly 10 times the amount of downloads of our podcasts as we do streams on our website. And I think the reason is we don't have a way of taking the information that we got out of putting somebody important on record and making it available in a lean forward web friendly way. So what we should have is break down the most important questions into chapters and allow you to very easily take that chapter and the exact 37 seconds of <laughs> audio or video that you want dump it in your own blog with the transcript and comment on it. Right. That stuff's still hard to do. We aren't making that very easy. We're making them listen to or watch the whole damn thing. I think we're not doing it right. And I think that holds for pretty much every news organization on the web right now despite the fact that a lot of excellent audio and video journalism is being done particularly by organizations like the Good Guardian and the New York Times. Right. 
so i guess breaking it down to make it far more palatable because even 20 minutes sometimes can be a little too long for someone who would love to listen to only those 45 seconds where the guest is talking about some controversial question that he is answering yeah. so can you break, yeah, break I, that down yeah you're right palatable is a good word we need to give people the option to scan quickly text works brilliantly that way it's very easy to scan text and find the bite sized chunks that are important to you we need to do a better job of figuring out how to divide up a half hour interview not by presenting only a couple of sound bites but by presenting the whole thing in a way that allows people to scan through chapters quickly and pull out just the stuff they want and reuse it if they want to i guess this might work the lean forward where you have the person hooked on to you all the time might work uh, during some live cricket match that is going on for instance we had tried this brendan some time back uh, which was not entirely legal we found that only later on is that when an india and pakistan match was going on it's like england versus australia when it comes to cricket right. it's so what we did was we put the television set on mute and we used ustream.tv a service mm-hmm. wherein you could uh, stream either live audio or video so we did mm-hmm. not stream video but we just were, were giving continuous running commentary of whatever was, was going on <laughs> on the tv set and you would not believe there were some 750 non resident indians who uh, were hooked on from across the globe we didn't have their television sets they were working and they were chatting back to us saying that hey that's a that was great i mean i hope india wins and and this was going out at the speed of light and they were interacting with us and it was fun that's amazing <laughs> they they donated some 1 5 10 dollars and we we had enough money for the dinner for all of us but if this is blown up if some big organization or a media house takes it then uh, for certain amount of time at least for a soccer game which only lasts 90 minutes you can end up selling so many products online because people will be hooked if they are not watching it they are they are maybe putting some information back to you if it is possible i think what you did is i think what you did is amazing so what's fascinating about it is that's how professional media organizations work Mm-hmm. If you look at the way presidential press conferences are carried using a pool feed, everybody gets the same stuff. And then what they do with it is up to them. And then you decide what to do with it. It's true of the Olympics. You know, there is a single feed and every different nation offers its own commenters in its own language. So I think what you did is kind of a brilliant consumer version of what normally only happens at the wholesale level. we we try to get away by saying that uh, we are creating our own content so there is no copyright infringement but i'm not so sure <laughs> about that so i would so, say that what you did was additive and transformative but definitely not limited uh it passed two of the fair use copyright tests absolutely failed the third one absolutely we agree we we've stopped doing that and we have our reasons <laughs> Uh, what are the new plans that you have at the economist uh, now that it's been 2 years and uh, apart from the audio that you have um it's uh, you would be surprised at in the economist at least the web operation and the print operation were actually physically separated the print organization worked in a building we call the tower it is literally and metaphorically a tower in london this was only 2 years ago when i started there you had to take an elevator down and walk across a plaza into another building to talk to the web guys. This is the edit this is not the technical people. These are the editorial staff for the web. Since I've arrived, and these are decisions that were taken far above me, they've done a, a very good job of actually integrating the web editorial staff with the papers editorial staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you should be taking some credit for that because there is there are not many people just above you. <laughs> it's it's the editor in chief. That's all. <laughs> No, there's not, there's there's one other layer between me uh-huh. and him. But yeah, of course, I I take credit for everything that's happened in the economy. You should. 
But you wouldn't believe what a huge effect just co-locating has done. Just a very simple thing. Just putting people in the same office makes a huge difference. And I think it's shocking uh, that it took us that long to do that. But that's true all over. You know Um, what I would love to see? I'm sorry, I can't cut you in. As you said, that they put all the editors on the web and uh, the editors who write those uh, stories together. Uh, uh, Daniel Franklin, when he was here, he said that every Monday you guys get together and brainstorm as to what stories should go on the on the newspaper the coming week. Yeah. It would be great if you could get an audio or a video of that and uh. put it up <laughs> because it must be a, a wonderful conversation and among all those people out there. It is, and you are not the first person to have suggested this. It's an amazing conversation. It's very heated. It's like what I imagine an undergraduate dorm would be like at Oxford. Very heated discussions, very open discussions. You have to be absolutely prepared and ready to defend yourself. If we broadcast that meeting publicly, all that would happen is we'd just have a private meeting afterwards, or the private meeting would escape to the halls. That's true. That's nicely put. I agree with you. Well, let me give you a different example. C-SPAN in the United States is a public service cable channel that was paid for by the cable companies that streams congressional hearings and floor speeches live. It has changed the nature of Congress. Things said on the well of the House and the Senate don't mean what they used to because everybody knows that they're on TV. The simple act of being watched makes you change what you say, which means that you're no longer saying things for the benefit of the people in the room. You're saying things for the benefit of the people watching TV in America. And this is even more so now that people have the ability to take 30 seconds of what you say and and put it on the web off the C-SPAN. So people become very careful with what they say. What they say becomes anodyne and and often worthless when they know they're being observed. The real work is always private. Completely agree. We don't want to dilute that. Uh, I I don't know if you want it. That's a very strange meeting. There are like 20 people packed into a very small room. It's a it's a fascinating meeting, but it's a strange one. It's very sort of because there's so little room in the editor in chief's office. You know, they're adults, grown men and women sitting Indian style on the floor (laughs) participating in a heated debate and thumbing through their blackberries. It's like angry, hypereducated (laughs) kindergarten. It's a very strange conversation. I can take a poll right now and 10 out of 10 people who read The Economist or who have been doing that for the past 10 years would wake up at 3 in the morning if you would want to broadcast that live, uh, <laughs> considering the time difference. <laughs> oh, but we'd ruin it if it were yeah, broadcast, then we'd just, we'd just all showboat. We don't want that. Well, Brendan, thanks a lot for your time. It's been a good 40-odd minute conversation and thanks a lot. Thank you. Good luck turning that into a podcast, man. <laughs> thanks good a lot. Good luck to you. Hey, I'm happy always, always to talk. And with uh, with the new gig as technology and policy correspondent, there's, there'll be a lot to talk about. So let's do this a little more often than we have. Let's not wait for a couple of years again. That's true. The last time, the last time we did this, I don't think I was even married, and now I have uh, twins. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> Anytime good. you want to do this, let me know. Great, Ben. Thanks a lot.